Good morning, everybody. We're so glad you could join us here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Would you stand with us as we begin singing?
Thank you. You may be seated. Hey there, I'm Priscilla, and I'm excited, as always, to have the opportunity to invite you to join me for Going Beyond Simulcast. Okay, here's what makes it unique. It's a digital opportunity for us to gather together globally. I'm talking about across lines that would normally divide us, not just because we live, you know, a neighborhood away or a couple states away, but even in different countries and continents, different languages, different accents, different streams of the church that are outside of our normal frame of reference. Through the Going Beyond Simulcast, we gather together globally. What an opportunity to form a sisterhood and to be a part of a gathering and have this opportunity to have our lives shifted, our perspectives changed, our hearts reignited with passion for the things of God. That's what the Going Beyond Simulcast is all about. And I can't wait to share it with you. Good morning. My name is Tim. If you're visiting or new here, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And you just saw on the screen on October 15th, we'll have a, a women's conference that we're going to host here at the church. Um, we're going to be watching video from Priscilla Schreier. Um, she teaches on that. And so we invite you women to be part of, of that event. If you are new, like, at Free Lake Evangelical Free Church, one of the things we want to be about as a church is three things, right? Reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving others. And so in your bulletin, there are kind of different ways to do each of those things. A way to kind of reach out to other people, one way to do that is next Saturday on the 24th at 4 p.m. We're going to have a, a fall harvest festival out at the Russell's Farm. So that's, we'll start at 4 p.m., we'll... Dinner will be served at 5 p.m. We'd ask you to bring a, a dessert or a salad to pass as part of that. You may have to want to bring a lawn chair as part of that. But it will be a time to hang out and gather and enjoy each other's company. And that's a great opportunity to invite people to come with you and to get to know people in the church in a, in a fun and relaxed atmosphere. So we'd invite you to be part of that. I want to come to growing to be like Christ. A few things we have coming up. One is... It's a membership class on October 1st. That's a step you can take in growing and becoming more a part of our church family here as you become a member of the church. So that's October 1st from 9 a.m. to noon. There will be child care available for that if you need that. I think that women's conference is also a way to grow. And then also there's an insert in your bulletin with different small groups and Bible studies that are coming up. So I invite you to look through those and consider what may be of interest to you. If you are interested, there's sign-up sheets on the table downstairs. You can sign up and indicate your interest in that. And the third thing we want to be about at the church is serving others. And so to talk a little bit more about that, I'm going to invite Donna to come up. Good morning, church. My name is Donna Russell, one of the members of your deaconess board here. And as we are in the season of ministries kickoff, I just thought I would remind you of some of our serving opportunities that we have here. Ah, yeah. 
Oh. Uh, Lori may know. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Dave. Speaking of coffee, did you know that we have a team that helps serve? Oh, oh, sorry to interrupt. Do you know where these chairs go? Oh, uh, yeah, I think we needed some over here for the junior high Sunday school class. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so in the back, we serve, we have coffee that we serve and water and tea, and we welcome people to come and host that. Um, Did you know we even have a chair ministry? Yes, it is a thing. So um, we have people who come and set up chairs that are needed either in the sanctuary or in the fellowship hall downstairs for special events. So there's a chair ministry, Sunday morning hospitality teams, greeters, small group leaders, Sunday school, Bible study leaders, church board members, fun club. We even need cookie bakers. So if you feel like you are well... Oh dear. Oh boy. And of course, who could forget the nursery? <laughs> Fun club, van drivers. So, if you consider this your church, we need you. Look around. Imagine if each of us did one thing of service to the Lord within our church. Whatever you are willing to help with, it will be a vital part of the working body of Christ in our church, our community, and beyond. Maybe you can play an instrument or have vocal abilities and can join a worship team. The life of this church happens because people of God, because God is leading his people in the ways that he has gifted them. Please prayerfully consider how you can help. You can see me, one of the pastors, or... um, a member of the worship team, and you can see the insert in your bulletin of the many needs that we have. So thank you in advance. Well, thank you, Donna. And yeah, she said there's an insert in your bulletin that details many, many of the opportunities we have to serve our church. There's something for every skill set, every ability, and so we'd invite you to look through those. If you fill that out, you can drop it in the box that's on the back wall um, where the offering goes as well. Um, We will get those, and the person who is in charge of that ministry will be in touch with you. We'd love to have you serve in whatever capacity you uh, may be interested in and willing. Uh, let Let me pray for us now as we continue on this morning. Father, we thank you for all the people who already serve our church so faithfully, who take responsibilities on themselves to enable our church to do the ministry you have called us to do. We thank you for so many faithful servant people who freely give of their time and their talents and their abilities to do the work that enables us to fix our minds and our hearts on you on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. Pray that you would be at work in each of us, reveal to us where you would call us 
to serve, where you would have us bless others through our abilities. Father, would our abiding desire not be to assuage some guilt by serving, but to see you glorified through our service? Would, would because of our service, would people become more like Jesus? Would people come to know Jesus for the first time? Father, we pray that you be at work in each one of our lives now, that we would each have a desire to reach people with the gospel. We each have a desire to grow more and more like Christ in our own lives. We each have a desire to serve other people well. God, would all that take place here this morning, would it serve to draw closer to you? Would it serve to conform us more and more into the image of your Son? And above all, would it serve bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the surf opportunities that got mentioned is Funk Club. And so to talk a little bit more about that, I'm going to invite Anne to come up. Thank you, Tim. Um, I feel like I got the premier spot for giving an announcement about ministry this morning after Donna's excellent announcement earlier. So... I am excited to tell you about Fun Club, which is the ministry that I have the privilege of coordinating here at the Three Lakes Free Church. Um, Fun Club is an after-school program for kids in 4K through 5th grade, and it meets the first and third Wednesday of every month. Um, We pick kids up from school. We are allowed to go into school and gather the kids and um, bring them in vans over here to the church and um, love on them for a couple of hours after church. Last year, there were 130 kids enrolled at school in those grades, and we had over 60 kids um, signed up for Fun Club and regularly saw in the upper 50s um, the number of kids coming to Fun Club each time. So that is about half of the kids at school were coming, and we are so privileged to be able to um, have this program for them. Um, Each of those kids also represents a family within the community that this ministry reaches out to. Um, As part of the Fun Club ministry, we also have pizza nights where we send families home with um, frozen pizzas and carrots and cookies that are made by people in the church, and they um, go home with those families, and they have a dinner ready to go for those nights that are busy. Um, A lot of families are under a lot of pressure with working parents and lots of the stresses that you and I know um, go along with having a family, and we just want to be able to bless them and make one night just a little bit easier um, and show them love, and that's the way that we are going to keep doing that going forward um, this year. Um, So what's so fun about Fun Club? Um, I'm sure you could ask lots of the kids that ran across the stage earlier who come to Fun Club, but Fun Club, we have snacks, we have free playtime, we have crafts, we have games, we have crazy games, we have um, lessons that teach them more about who God is and how he loves them and about Jesus and how he can be their savior. And um, it's such an awesome opportunity um, beyond being able to do all those things, an awesome opportunity to really get to know kids in this community and also show them people who know Jesus and who love Jesus and to show them more about the love of Christ through just having a fun and safe and um, happy place for them to be after school. So some of you adults are thinking, I wish I could go to Fun Club. And 
I have good news. You can come to Fun Club. Um, I would welcome you at Fun Club. We need volunteers. Um, we have had a great team over these last um, years. I could not be um, happier with the volunteers that we have been having. Volunteer for Fun Club, we've had a couple of people shift into different roles and different job situations, and so we have some openings, um, particularly for people to work directly with small groups of children. Now, you don't have to do any prep to come to Fun Club other than putting on your shoes and getting in your car and coming here um, because there are activities that are already um, are already programmed, and all you have to do is up ready to love on kids and guide them through the evening. Now, it is... It is, it is fun, and it is loud, and it is crazy, and it is great. Um, but you will go home with a smile on your face. A little tired, but very, very happy um, hearing all of that laughter and all of that fun. So I need small group leaders, a couple more of those. Um, and then also somebody to coordinate snacks for those 60-plus kids after school who come here hungry. And I've got a couple other behind-the-scenes jobs that could be done as well. So whether you want to work with kids or you want to work behind the scenes, I can find a place for you. And I would love to have you on the team. Would you stand if you're able this morning? We're going to continue in worship. Um, we're going to do In Christ Alone. It's a different version that we found that's got a bridge. It's not really new. It's new to us, though. And part of the bridge goes, I find my strength, I find my hope, I find my help in Christ alone. And, you know, just the verses of this, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Um, would Just sing this with us and, and mean it. I'm so grateful that we can find our strength and our hope in Christ alone. We don't need anyone else or anything else. He's all he's all that we need. So would you sing with us?
those words we just sang are true. That you are our living hope. That the, the grave cannot hold you. That because you defeated death, now death has no hold on us. That you gave up the glory from heaven. You entered our sin, our shame, in order to come defeat death for us, defeat sin for us. Would we never grow tired of singing and rejoicing in the the beauty of all that you've done for us that we just sing about? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. you almost certainly know, unless you've been like, found some magical way to entirely disconnect from all world news, you almost certainly know that like, the monarchy of the United Kingdom has been in the news a lot over the past week or so, with or the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the ascension of King Charles. And it's like, obviously a big news story, and sad on one level, but also like all this news coverage about the the British monarchy is kind of reminding me how weird the the British monarchy is. Or like like historically, right? If you call someone king or you call someone queen, that meant something, right? It meant they ruled with supreme authority over the land, right? Like what they said went. That's like what it meant to be a king or a queen. Right? They might have councils to advise them or people to give input, right? But Ultimately, the king or the queen's word was the law of the land. It's like what the word meant. And I know, like, Queen Elizabeth II was deeply beloved. In fact, I just read that the line to see her body lying in state had reached 24 hours until they had to stop people from lining up out of fear for people's health and stuff. And so, like, that's incredible. Right? But even though she was beloved, like, the British monarchy is kind of strange. Like, it just, it's shocking how little authority the British monarch actually has. Because right? right, the British monarchy, the, the, the constitutional monarchy, so the parliament had all the real authority of passing laws in the country. Right? So the king or the queen technically in that system has to give royal assent to each law that passed. Right? But the last time a monarch failed to give royal assent to a new law was 1708. Which, for context, it's like 70 years before the U.S. became a country. Right? So, like, it's just like a, it's a rubber stamp in the purest sense of the term. Right? And in fact, according to the U.K. royal official, a royal website, that's what it says. The monarch's main role is to serve as a vital part of Britain's national identity, unity, and pride. Right? That's the official statement. That's their main role, to be a vital part of Britain's national identity, unity, and pride. Which, like, what is that? Like, like you're, the, you're the king? Your main role is to be a vital part of national pride? Right? It's, like, it's like the kid who's like, not good enough to make the football team, right? But we'll let him be the mascot. Right? Like, yeah, he's not good. He can't actually play football, but sure, he's a vital part of our team pride. Like, it sounds good. And, like, it's just interesting, right, that... There's so little real authority wrapped up in the title 
king for King Charles. But despite the fact that he's king, there's very little that he has the authority to actually do. He can't issue a command to some ordinary citizen and expect to be obeyed. And this issue of authority is at the heart of today's Bible passage as well. But the question is, that in this today's passage, which is Luke 20, verses 1 through 8, the question is, does Jesus have the authority to make the kind of claims that he's going to make during his ministry? Does he have real authority, or does he have authority like King Charles has authority? Like, what is the level of Jesus' authority? That's the question at the heart of today's passage. So, like I said, we're in Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. And just as a reminder, like right before this passage, we looked at the passage last week where Jesus had just arrived at Jerusalem, and the very first thing he does is he shows up at the temple and he cleanses it. He casts out the money changers. He casts out people who are selling things in the temple. It's the very first action as he enters into Jerusalem. And that was on the Sunday before his crucifixion, the Sunday before Good Friday. And now in the week leading up to his death, he's going to spend a little bit of each day in the temple teaching. That's where we pick up the story this morning with Jesus in the temple. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1, we read this. One day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elder, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because... They are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And so, in this passage, the main question that drives this passage is the, the chief priest asking Jesus, Who gave you this authority? Right? And that, that question is, ultimately fundamental to each and every one of our lives. Like, there are few questions more important for us to come to a firm conviction on than does Jesus actually have the authority to make the claims that he makes? Right? That's the that's big idea that I want us to focus on this morning. Right, That what we believe about Jesus' authority will determine how we respond to him. Whatever we believe is going to impact how we respond to the things that Jesus says throughout the gospel. Because here's the reality. That Jesus makes some very big claims on our life. He makes some claims that are audacious, that are huge, that are demanding of us. And we'll look at those claims a little bit later. But it's important to understand right now, right off the bat that like, those audacious claims that Jesus makes on our life, they leave no room for a half-hearted response to him. Right? You're either all in or you're all out. Right? Either he has supreme authority to actually make those claims, and therefore you should submit to him fully, or 
he has no right, no authority to make those claims. You can just reject him entirely. And those are the only two options. It's the only two rational options. But what so many people seem to think, and what some people seem to do with Jesus, is to think, like, eh, he's pretty alright. Like, I'm happy to go along with a lot of what he says. Right? But some of those things he says, I'm just going to ignore those. And like, hear me. Like, that response to Jesus to be like, yeah, most of it's good, but I'm going to just ignore a few things. Like, that's not a choice. I mean, it's a choice, and that everything's a choice, but it's not a rational choice. It's not a rational response to Jesus. We must decide what we believe about Jesus and His authority. And then let whatever we believe about His authority influence how we respond to Him. So in this passage this morning, we see three things. We see Jesus' activity. We see Jesus doing things that, that lead to these questions in the first place. Then we see his authority. So specifically, we see Jesus' authority questioned by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then third, we see Jesus' audacity. We see that he has confidence flowing out of his authority to make claims and take actions that would be utterly audacious if he didn't have the authority in the first place. So we see Jesus' activity, his authority, and his audacity. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at each one of those things, starting with his activity. So Jesus' activity, like what is it? What are the things that Jesus was doing that actually caused the chief priest to ask these questions in the first place? As we look at this passage, we see three things that Jesus was doing. The first one is actually in the last passage, when Jesus drove out the money changers from the cellar from the temple. That's the first thing he did. Like he cleansed the temple. And then in verse 1 in this passage, we see two other things he did. He was teaching, and he was proclaiming the good news. Right? So three things Jesus is doing. Cleansing the temple, teaching, proclaiming the good news. And doing those three things is going to cause the religious leader to ask the question, like, who gave you this authority? Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? Who gave you the authority to teach? Who gave you the authority to proclaim the good news? I think it's important for all of us here to understand exactly what Jesus is doing in each of these things, to understand why each of these activities bothered the religious leaders so much. As we said last week, first was cleansing the temple. By cleansing the temple, Jesus was condemning the worship of the religious leaders. He was telling them that the way they led the people in worship, the way they worshipped themselves was broken and it was wrong. When cleansing the temple, Jesus condemned their worship. And then in his teaching, we read that he was teaching in the temple, and in his teaching, Jesus condemned the lifestyle of the religious leaders. Jesus tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple, but he doesn't actually tell us anything about what Jesus was teaching during that time. But I think it's a pretty safe assumption to think that whatever Jesus was teaching is probably pretty similar to what we've seen him teaching all throughout the book of Luke. And in his teaching, there are a few things Jesus liked to do more than point out the hypocrisy and the, the wrong-headedness of the religious leaders. You can imagine how that would not sit well with the religious leaders. Right? So for, for example, in, in chapter 12, 
Jesus says that he's teaching, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus taught, Jesus' teaching was that the Pharisees live very hypocritical lives. For example, Jesus taught that like, our lives should be not materialistic, that they should be, that we should use our resources for God's purposes. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were, they were greedy and they sought personal wealth. Jesus taught that our prayer should be done largely in private and in straightforward language. But the Pharisees loved to pray ornate, long-winded prayers out in public so people could see how holy they were. Jesus taught that we should always be ready for the Son of God to appear, but the religious leaders didn't recognize Jesus when he was right in front of their face. Jesus taught that we should love all people from all nations and all social statuses. But the religious leaders, they were, they were only concerned about the upper class of Jewish culture by and large. Jesus taught that it was what goes on in your heart that mattered above all. While the religious leaders were only concerned about outward appearances. So when Jesus starts teaching these things in the temple, in the hearing of the religious leaders, he's condemning the way they live their life. He's condemning their lifestyle. Which naturally prompts the question then, like, who is this God? Like, what gives him the authority to, to condemn us this way? Then Jesus' third activity, his, the third thing he does, is that he proclaims the good news. And that word good news there is euangelion. It's the word for gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel in the temple. And in doing that, Jesus is condemning the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. There's this big conflict between Jesus' teaching of the gospel and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees that is summed up well in the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. You may remember that, that parable. In that parable, a Pharisee and a tax collector both show up at the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prays first and he says, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other people. That I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Like, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And that prayer, right, it's, the, it's the embodiment of self-righteousness. Like, I'm better than all these other people. I'm better than robbers. I'm better than adulterers. I'm way, way better than that tax collector over there. Not only do I not do bad things in my life, but I also... I, I, I fast twice a week. I, I give a tenth of all I get. Like, I'm, I'm so great. Don't you see it, God? Because I'm so great, like, surely, God, you're going to listen to my prayer right now. Like, I've earned the right to have my prayer heard. Like, that is self-righteousness embodied. And that, in a, in a nutshell, is the, the moral code of the religious leaders. You keep these strict moral laws... And if you do that, God will be pleased with you and listen to your prayers and he'll do your bidding. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. He teaches the exact opposite. His, his message is summed up in the prayer of the tax collector in this parable. In this parable, the, the tax collector, he doesn't pray in the flowery language of the, of the Pharisee. In fact, Luke tells us that the, the tax collector won't even look up to heaven as he prays. 
Instead, he, he beats his chest and he simply prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Like that, in a nutshell, is the message of Jesus. Right? His, his message, his good news, the gospel, it's a message that none of us, not even the most morally upright of us, can ever be good enough to earn God's favor. None of us, based on our own self-righteousness, have any right to even look to heaven. Even the most morally upright of us, because of our sin, have no right to think we can stand before God. And so all that we can do, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our separation from God, is to do what the tax collector does in this parable. And throw ourselves on God's mercy. All we can do is confess we're a sinner and ask God to be merciful to us. And the good news message that Jesus is preaching here in the temple in Luke 20 is that when we confess our sins, He will show us mercy. The parable ends with Jesus saying that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went away justified. That it was that prayer of God, be merciful to me, a sinner that led to the forgiveness of sins. Even though from the outside, the Pharisee lived a far more morally upstanding life. It was the tax collector who went away clean and forgiven. The good news that Jesus is teaching here in the temple that Luke is talking about starts with the bad news that none of us is righteous enough to meet God's perfect standard. But it becomes good news when we accept that our only hope is to confess our sins and, and cast ourselves on the mercy of God. We cast ourselves on God's mercy because God sent His Son to live the perfect life that we should have and failed to live. He died the death we deserve for our sins. Because He did that, He can show us mercy. Our sins can be forgiven because they've already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And that, that message, that message of good news, is entirely antithetical to everything the religious leaders have built their life on. Their life was all about self-righteousness. Being better than the person next to them. And now Jesus shows up and he condemns their self-righteousness. By proclaiming the good news, Jesus tells them that their self-righteousness is worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. The good news that Jesus proclaims says that self-righteousness is actually devastating to a right relationship with God. And yet, many of us, myself included sometimes, like, walk around with the same kind of self-righteousness that the Pharisees had. Like, we look around and we say, like, oh yeah, I'm better than that person. Like, I'm better than that person. Like, way better than that person. Like, and like, we look at all these people and we like, I'm so much better than so many people. Like, God must think I'm pretty great because I'm better than those people over there. Like, and we wouldn't say that out loud because we know how to filter our language to sound all nice and Christian. Right? But like, 
think if you examine your heart and your mind, like, we feel that way sometimes. Right? Ultimately, like, if, if God asked many of us, like, why He should let us into heaven, like, many people in the world would answer with some version of, eh, I'm a good person. But the Bible makes it clear, like, there's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. There's not good people. So look, if you, if you believe that the reason God will let you into heaven someday has anything to do with your good behavior, anything to do with your self-righteousness, you're in trouble. There's no one who meets God's standard. The only reason to be allowed into heaven someday is if we're hoping, not in our self-righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness, which is given to us, credited to us, when we trust and believe that Jesus died for our sins. If you're here and you've, you've never believed that, if you've been trying to earn God's favor by your own good works, It won't work. But Jesus lived it for you. He died for you to forgive your sins. All you have to do to have His righteous, perfect life applied to you, given to you, so that God sees you as if you lived the righteous life that Jesus lived, is believe in Jesus. You're here. You never believe Jesus. I'd urge you to do that now. If you have questions about what that means, I'd be more than happy to talk to you one-on-one sometime. So Jesus does these activities. He cleanses the temple. He, he teaches and He proclaims the gospel. And they all condemn the lifestyle of the religious leaders. He condemns their worship. He condemns their lifestyle. He condemns their self-righteousness. You put all those together and Jesus is condemning like the core of who the religious leaders are. Like, he is rejecting everything about them. Everything that matters. So it's not surprising that they ask, who is this guy? Like, who does he think he is coming in here talking like this? Who gives him this authority? And typically at that time, like a, a rabbi's credential, the ra- a rabbi's like credibility was closely tied to who he studied under. Right? Like, kind of like how, like, if you had to go to trial to save your life, right? You'd probably rather have a lawyer from Harvard than a lawyer from Podunk Community College. Right? Like, like where you were educated matters, and it mattered in that time to the religious leaders. Like who you studied under, what rabbi taught you with the fast track to having credibility as a rabbi yourself. So then Jesus shows up. And he didn't even go to Podunk Community College. He was a carpenter. A tradesman. Just kidding, tradesman. I'm happy you're here. And he just, he just waltzes onto the scene and he starts teaching like with no formal rabbinical education. And he doesn't just fall into line and teach what the other rabbis are teaching. His, his teaching is distinct. Like Matthew puts it this way. Right? At, the end of this, 
at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? which is his longest, most comprehensive view of what Jesus taught, at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus' teaching was marked by authority. And that was different than how the teachers of the law taught. And so that question of, like, where does this authority come from? It's a vital question for each one of us to answer. Like, why does Jesus have the right to say the things he says? And Jesus claims a lot of authority over each of our lives. That each of us has to decide if we believe that Jesus has the authority to make the claims that he makes. Right? I said earlier, I'll say it again though. Right? If, if Jesus has the authority that he claims, then we ought to submit ourselves to even his most audacious claims on our life. Right? But if he, he doesn't have the authority, then we can just ignore him. As I said, like, well, it's not a rational option to say, I like Jesus for the most part. But I'm going to ignore some of the more radical, audacious claims he makes on my life. Right? That's, not a, that's not an option the Bible leaves open to us. There are two possible sources of Jesus' authority. There are the same two sources that Jesus gives the religious leaders about John's baptism. Right? So in verse 3, Jesus asks, Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? We can ask the same question about Jesus' authority. Is it from heaven, is it divine, or is it of human origin? If it's of, if it's of human origin, if, it's just, if Jesus is just some guy who showed up and had a lot of confidence and charisma and started teaching because he was good at it, but it's just a human guy, we can just ignore what he says. He has no claim on us. But if his authority is from heaven, if his authority is of God, then we have to submit to every part of his authority, not just the parts we like. And the whole book of Luke really is, in a sense, one big attempt to show that Jesus has divine authority. And Luke 5 a paralyzed man comes and he asks Jesus to heal him. But instead of healing him right away, Jesus first says, your sins are forgiven. And that causes quite a ruckus among the religious leaders who are there. Because they say, like, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven is a claim of to be God. A claim of divine authority. And the religious leaders don't like that. Because if it's not true, then it is blasphemy. And they shouldn't like it. But Jesus responds by saying, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. <clears throat> but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man does. That 
physical healing, right? the miracle in that story. But the way of outwardly, visibly showing that Jesus had the authority to make the claims that only God can make. One of the big reasons that Luke shows us miracle after miracle after miracle in this book is to show us that Jesus has the authority that he claims that he has. And also throughout the book, Luke calls Jesus all these various names. He calls him the Son of the Most High. He calls him the Christ. He calls him the Holy One of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. He calls him Israel's King. All those titles, all those names that Luke gives Jesus in this book imply that Jesus has divine authority. So it's clear, right, that that Luke believes that Jesus' authority is from God. And it's clear that Jesus himself is claiming to have divine authority. And the question that each of us here this morning has to answer is do you personally believe that Jesus has that divine authority? Do you personally believe that Jesus' authority is divine? And then will you submit to that divine authority? There are plenty of people who would call themselves Christians, but, but disregard some of the more challenging claims that Jesus makes on their life. But if Jesus truly has divine authority, we're called to submit ourselves to even His most audacious claims on our life. Jesus has an audacity about Him that is the result of having this divine authority. We see that, we see that audacity in, his, in how He responds to the religious leaders. They ask Him the question. They ask Him, like, who gave you this authority? And no doubt, <clears throat> the religious leaders expect, based on their own authority, right, that when they ask a question, it will be answered with, with deference and respect. In the temple, right, the, the religious leaders expected to be treated as the divine or the ultimate authority. Right? It's like how, like, in boot camp, right? A young soldier is expected to, to answer his, his drill sergeant questions and command promptly and with deference and with respect. It would be, it'd be foolish of that young soldier to, to reply to his superior question with a question of his own. It wouldn't go well for him. And that's how the religious leaders are used to be being treated in the temple. They had the ultimate authority. It was them who asked the question. They expected answer to their questions. To answer one of their questions with a question of your own would be audacious. But that's what Jesus does here. They ask him, Who gave you this authority? Jesus replies with a question saying, John baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? And the religious leaders, right, they have no answer. Because they know that they say from heaven. Jesus will call them out because they refuse to be baptized by John. But if they say it's of human origin, the people will get upset because they believe that John was a prophet. And so, the religious leaders just refuse to answer. And in reply, 
Jesus audaciously refuses to answer their question as well. Like Cortez, we said, it's not particularly important for our purposes this morning that, that Jesus didn't answer their question. Right? Because he's answered it time and time and time and time again in his ministry. His authority is the result of being God incarnate. He is God who has come to earth and taken on flesh. That's where his authority comes from. He is God in the flesh. That's where his authority comes from. Well, this interaction with the, the religious leaders shows us is that Jesus' divine authority allows him to make claims that would not be possible if he didn't have that authority. So just, like, think with me. Like, think about Jesus and all the things he says. Think back through the book of Luke at all the claims that Jesus makes on our life. Jesus claims authority over how we spend our money. He claims authority over how we spend our time. He claims authority over how we treat others, even those we don't like. He claims authority over our family. He claims authority over how we act, even in private. He claims authority over our attitudes. He claims authority even over our thoughts. He claims the right to every last aspect of our life. That's audacious. But if he has divine authority, then it is his right to make those claims. So here's the question. If you believe that Jesus has that authority, if you believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, is there any part of your life that you're not submitting to him? Are you in a spot where you're happy to follow Jesus in most areas, but you want to you be free to spend your money how you see fit? You're happy to follow Jesus in most areas, but you want to spend your time however you want. Or you're happy to follow Jesus most of the time, but you want to hate and be bitter with your enemies. Or you're happy to follow Jesus outwardly, but you want your private thoughts to be free to go wherever they may go. If you believe right, that Jesus has divine authority, then every aspect of our life belongs to Him. We're called to submit to Him in every part of our life. But here's the really good news. He wants that authority. He claims that authority because He's our Creator. Because He knows what is best for us. He doesn't claim that authority then use it as a, a power trip. He doesn't claim that authority then use it, to lead us, use it to lead us into harmful behavior. When we submit all of our life to the authority of Jesus, we find that He leads us into the life that He made us to live. He leads us into a life of, of meaning and of purpose and of fulfillment. He leads us into a life that is meant to be. There's, there's deep joy in that life. It's not the hollow, fleeting, temporary happiness of the world. But the life of following Jesus has a, a deep and abiding and a lasting joy that can exist even in the face of pain and trial 
and hardship and suffering. So my, my encouragement to you this morning is to step into that joy that He offers. Submit every part of your life to Jesus' authority, trusting that by doing so, you're walking into a more joyful life. We will always fail at different times and different parts of our life to perfectly submit. That's where we come back to the cross and all that Jesus did to forgive us of our sins. But by refusing certain parts of our lives, refusing to submit certain parts of our lives to Him, like, ultimately we're, we're harming ourselves. We're not living the life that we were made to live. Right? The life that leads us into the fullness of joy. I just encourage you to give every aspect of your life to Him. Live it the way He calls you to live. Repent of the areas that you've failed before and trust Him going forward. It is a life that comes and will bring joy and life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and for that you sent him, that he came, he gave up the glories of heaven, that he entered into broken, sinful earth. He came to live among us, to be like us in every way, and yet to be without sin. Thank you, Jesus, for the life you lived. For being perfectly righteous when we were not. For going to the cross for us. To make it possible for us to have our sins forgiven. And to receive your righteousness. Father, help us to trust Jesus, take Him at His word, to submit every aspect of our life to Him and to the way He calls us to live. Help us to see that in submitting ourselves to Jesus, we're not depriving ourselves of certain things, but we are walking into the life you made us to live, the best life for us. Father, would we be people who, in submitting to the authority of Jesus, serve to bring you honor and glory wherever we go as we walk through our lives day in and day out. But people see the lives that we live in submission to your authority. Would it cause people to 
glorify you as they see our lives. To cause others to be drawn to you as they see our lives, as they interact with us. They, we tell them about how Jesus informed how we live. Would it spur others to trust Jesus? Would it spur others to submit to His authority? To step into the fullness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you go from here. Would you go rejoicing in the good news that Jesus taught? And would you go submitting yourself to the authority of Jesus? You are dismissed.